Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, if we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church, Cool Springs. Good to be with you all this morning. That handbell choir, I just wish we could do it every week, Ruth, wherever you are. We could just cobble that together. We can, that was so much fun. That was so much fun. And you see, like, when you put a handbell in, in, a, in a kid's hand, you see their personality, right? Some of them are cautious, and others are like, this, this handbell is going to know who's the boss, <laughs> which is so much fun. So, y'all remember fourth grade? Any of you in fourth grade, by the way? And most, most of our fourth graders go out there to, you got one hand, I see that hand in the back. <laughs> fourth grade. I grew up in a little town in Indiana called Tipton, where a uh, farming community where we had an annual festival called the Pork Festival. That helps you find where I grew up on the map a little bit. We were farming people. There was a beauty pageant at the Pork Festival where the, the winner would be crowned Miss Pork Cuisine and would wear the sash in the parade. And it was completely unironic, right? It was, it was the thing that, that uh, girls aspired to in our, in our town. I went to this little, <laughs> this little uh, school on the, on the edge of town called Lincoln Elementary School. I started going there uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. And uh, in fourth grade, there was a day in fourth grade where I'm standing in line at the water fountain, and um, the, the school bully who's in my grade uh, comes up to me and he, and he tells me, now this is a Tuesday, by the way, that's important. He comes up to me and he tells me that at recess he's going to beat me up on Friday, which is three days away. So 
So I have to absorb this information. Three days from now, at recess, this kid who we'll just call, uh, for anonymity's sake, we'll just call him Clubber Lang, um, which is, if you don't catch the reference, Mr. T plays a character named Clubber Lang in Rocky Three, which was out about that time. And uh, <laughs> so Clubber tells me that he's going to beat me up on a Tuesday, but he, he says it's going to happen on, on Friday. Every time I see him, he gives me this menacing kind of grin, uh, like the kid in, in a Christmas story, you know, like he's, like he's going to just, that he's relishing the duration of my waiting for this. And every time I see him, he reminds me, on Friday, you're going to get it. And then his friends all start to remind me, yeah, on Friday, you're going to get it. And then all my friends start to remind me that on Friday, look out, buddy. I'd never been in a fight before. I'm not a fighter. I've never been in a fight before in my life. I didn't plan on being in this one. But growing up in the country in Indiana in the 80s, kids lived by a code. Um, and I don't know if it's still the same today, but it was then. And that was that I, I knew that I had to show up. I had to be there for this. I had to show up to hide would be unconscionably dishonorable. And yet, to fight back was also <laughs> unthinkable. And so what I did is I just basically went through the entire week just presuming that on Friday, Clubber was going to beat the tar out of me. And that was how the week was going to go. And so for the rest of the week, Clubber ruled the playground. He ruled my every waking minute he ruled the keys to my future. He held them in his hand. He counted down my remaining opportunities for joy. And so there he was at recess on the monkey bars holding court. And there I was on the other side of the playground doing hard time by the swing set. And then Friday morning came. I woke up and I was just stone cold serious as I got ready for school. And uh, my mom noticed something, because moms, right, they notice. And she said, something, you okay? I said, I was fine. And then a tear just rolled down my cheek. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, nothing, I'm fine. And besides, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> and so she sat me down, and she made me tell her. And so I told her, Clubber Lang is going to beat me up at recess today. And then I told her, Mom, you must let me do this. You have to let me do this. You, you can't intervene. Because a fourth grade boy only has so much honor to work with in a small town, right? And to hide would just deplete what little reserve I had to begin with, and so I made her swear that she wouldn't intervene. And all day leading up to recess, there's, there's Clubber. He can tell time. He, he understands that the moment is coming, and he's just there sneering at me all day. And I just, I dreaded it. I dreaded what was coming. And then five minutes before recess, I get called down to the principal's office. And I walk into the principal's office, and there's Clubber Lang sitting in a chair. And he sits me down. The principal sits me down, and he sits Clubber down, and I, I'm crying, you know. And he's just kind of 
stone cold looking at the principal, and the principal kind of does one of these things where he leans on his, leans forward on his desk, and he goes, "Clubber, you better not lay a hand on Russ. Do you hear me?" And he said it in such a way that it took all of the venom out of my worthy opponent, and he swore, "I won't. I'm, I'm sorry. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't." <laughs> And I think about it, it's funny, isn't it, how like you have these memories growing up, certain things happen in your life that are, that are formative, that are, that are uh, you know, traumatic, uh, sometimes they're, they're, they're like that experience that's kind of childhood playground kind of traumatic, and then we have other things that happen that are, that are on a much greater scale of, of trauma, but, but for three days, for three days, I live under this narrow fear of Clubber's threat, this imposing doom that's hanging over me. The genius of what he did, by the way, was the three days notice, right? It wasn't the beating. I, he gave me a beating with the three days notice. Like, that was enough. I suffered enough under that. But the entire time I'm waiting, I, I, it didn't occur to me that I, I had a principal. I had a, had a principal. And I had a mother who, turns out, broke her promise to me and went to the principal <laughs> and told him what was going to happen. I didn't, by the way, I didn't find that out until I was in my 20s. <laughs> I just thought he's a principal, he knows what's going on in his own school. But on that day, on that, uh, that, really that whole week, my world was only as big as my trouble. It was only as big as the thing that was looming over me and my only option was just to take the beating. My only option was just to absorb the suffering that I knew that Clubber would soon deliver. And so my, my world was broken. I understood that as a fourth grader. And my response to it was, well, I'm just going to live in it. I'm just going to live in it as it is, and I'm going to take whatever punishment it wants to dole out on me. But for my principal, he's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm going to intervene. I didn't ask him to. He just did it. And this is, in a way, the story of Christmas. It's living in a broken world where we take a myriad of beatings and we suffer and fear looms over us and we think, I just got to take it. I just got to take it. And we don't know who to ask to intervene. We don't know if anybody can intervene. And God intervenes anyway. We don't ask him to. He just does. He speaks to his people who aren't necessarily even looking for him. And that's what happens in this passage about the annunciation of Jesus when the angel appears to Mary. Mary's living her life, right? She's living her life. She's not waiting necessarily for God to come. She's grown up with the stories that Messiah is coming, but never in her wildest dreams did she think it would be through her. She's probably a teenager-ish around the time that this encounter happened. She's engaged to Joseph. They're betrothed to be married. They live in this out-of-the-way town called Nazareth that doesn't have the greatest reputation in the world. We know that Joseph is descended from the line of King David. We don't really know where Mary's from necessarily or who her ancestors are. But we know that these two are together and that they're living a simple life and that they're working hard toward a life that they presume they're just going to live out for the remainder of their days as husband and wife there in that town of Nazareth. And that's going to be the deal. And all of this is interrupted when Mary is visited by an angel who tells her 
something that's not going to just dramatically change the rest of her life, but it's going to change the course of history. And the message that the angel gives her comes in three basic parts. And that's how I want to structure the rest of this sermon is these three basic parts of the message. Part one of the angel's message from the Lord to Mary is this. I know your deepest, greatest need. I know it. The angel tells Mary God has found favor with her. Or that she has found favor with God, I think is the way to say that. And so she should not fear. God interacts with his people. So we can put aside for a moment the plastic nativity Mary and imagine a real girl who discovers that the Lord of all loves her, that the Lord of all knows her, and that he is intimately involved in the details of her life. What did he know of her? Because what he knew of her, he knows of us. And this is what he knew. First, he knew her name. In verse 30, the angel uses her name. He says this. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with the Lord. And there we also see that he knows her fear, right? That she's afraid. This angel has appeared and, he, and she is afraid. What are your fears? What are the things that are kind of the, the, the low burn anxiety that runs constant for you? Or maybe the thing that makes, it, <laughs> makes you say, low burn. No, it's not low burn. It's a, it's a raging, consuming fire all the time. What is your fear? What is your fear? Because here's, here's what Scripture teaches. God knows it. He knows your name and he knows your fear, the complexity of it, the way that you, you feel like I did when Clubber said, in three days' time, I'm going to beat you up, the, the inevitability of it, the, 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 the foreboding that something bad is going to happen and there's nothing that could ever stop it. The Lord knows your fear. He knew her confusion as well. He gives this message to her and she runs it through her mind and she says, it doesn't make sense to me. How can this happen? Because I'm a virgin, and virgins don't give birth to children. Everybody knows that, right? What's beautiful about this is we see, and I hope that this is comforting to you, especially in your confusion, is that God isn't impatient with Mary's inability to understand what the Lord is saying to her. I mean, that's kind of the deal when God speaks to people, right? Is there's going to be a measure of, I don't really understand what you mean. Because it's, it's the infinite speaking to the finite. So what's going on in your life that doesn't make sense? You just say, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how things can be the way that they are. One of the beautiful things that happens in this passage is Mary voices her confusion to God. I don't understand how this can be. It's a model of prayer in a way. It means that we're free to voice our confusion to the Lord, that it's valid to say to God, I know that these are things that you want from my life, but I don't understand how you're going to work in them. I don't understand why you want those things from me when it seems like life would be so much easier if I didn't have to do that. He knows her confusion. What else does he know? He knows her future, which he also knows ours. He says, you will have 
a son. And the beauty of this is it, is it shows us that God's will does not require our capacity to understand. Just because I don't understand something that's going on doesn't mean God won't do what God will do. God's going to do what he's going to do. And we can rest in that. Even when we don't understand, you will have a son, he tells her. He is writing his story in her life, and that's what he does with us. He has her. He has you. And then finally, in terms of understanding and knowing her deepest, greatest need, he knows the general brokenness of the world that she lives in. Which if you've been with us for this sermon series that we've been in, the women who gave us Jesus, and we've been looking at the women and the line of Christ, the through line in all of the texts that we've looked at has been the ugly brokenness of the world into which these women were born and the way that they came into even the generational line of Christ is through a lot of brokenness and a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. This world needs a perfect ruler. It needs a healer. It needs a healing king. It needs a ruling king. It needs a heavenly king because we see the brokenness of this world. What is it that breaks your heart? Because God knows it. He knows what breaks your heart. He knows what breaks my heart. What the angel reveals to Mary is that God knows her. He knows her heart, he knows her fears, he knows the world and its brokenness. But at Christmas, we remember that he hasn't just come to tell her that he knows. He hasn't come to say, I know your deepest, greatest need. The second part of the message is, regarding your deepest, greatest need, I'm meeting it. That's the second part. God doesn't just know what we need. Christmas is the story about God acting to meet it. And it's such an elaborate thing that he does, really, here, isn't it? Here's how God addresses our deepest need. Mary is going to conceive a son, and the son will be named Jesus. And it will be a miraculous conception. And the son will be called the son of God. And so the virgin would have a son given to her, and God has already chosen his name, and Matthew points out in his text that the name Jesus means salvation. So how is he meeting the need? Well, he's giving a savior, a savior. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. The author of Hebrews calls him our great high priest, our savior, the Lamb of God. One of the most astounding things about this angelic visit is how Mary moves from a posture of uncertainty and confusion to open-handed acceptance. If I'm just being completely honest with you, I wish I had this. I ask the Lord to give me this. Open-handed acceptance of God's ability to work and move in things that I see through a glass darkly. Maybe you're there too. Mary models this for us, and I think one of the beautiful things is, for me, and maybe you're this way, 
certain things that I don't understand and I don't know how God is working and I don't see how God is working, there's a part of me that thinks if I just had more information, I'd be able to crack the code and then I'd see it clearly, right? It's why people become theology nerds. For you theology nerds out there, there is a delight that we find in the promise of achieving some sort of intellectual certainty, right? And then as you get older, the Lord smacks that certainty out of your hand and says, oh, you thought you knew so much. And then you suffer, right? And things are not as watertight as you thought they were. For Mary, though, it's just... It's not that kind of thing, because he's saying, you're going to have a son. By the way, you're a virgin. We, I know you're a virgin, but you're going to have a son anyway. This doesn't compute. There isn't a way to figure that out, because the facts are already established. This just doesn't happen. But she moves from this posture of confusion to acceptance. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If you go into 2022... With that as a prayer that you write on your mirror where you see it every morning, Lord, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You're probably going to have a better 2022 than you had of 2021, right? Because we try. We try to figure it out. We try to crack the code. We try to get, thing, get in front of things, and we can't always do this. How does Mary know, though, that God can perform this miracle, that God can do this thing in her? Well, the angel of the Lord points to another miracle birth, which is a thread that runs through the story of God's covenant promise with his people, his babies being brought into this world in improbable or impossible ways, right? Abraham and Sarah, they were old. She was barren before they had any children, and God brought forth Isaac miraculously, And that continues over and over and over again. Barrenness is a thread throughout here. And it goes all the way to her cousin, Elizabeth, who's carrying in her womb, though she's been barren her whole life, she's carrying John the Baptist. And the angel of the Lord basically says to her, check it out, you'll see. And this is astounding because the way God means to respond to Mary's need and to ours is on the surface impossible, a virgin with child. And it's only good news, this promise of a Savior, it's only good news if it's possible, right? It's only good news if it can actually happen. And if it is possible, will it really work? The Lord's showing Mary another miracle baby already on the way in a long line of improbable, miraculous births in order to say, I know your deepest, darkest need, your greatest need. I'm meeting it. But then the third part of the message is where the angel of the Lord assures her and us, the way I'm meeting it is effective. So I know your greatest need, I'm meeting it, and it's going to work. It's going to work. I think about the principal again, calling us down to the office, right? My mom knew my greatest need. She met it by going to the principal. But there's a part of, you know, her, I'm sure, on the drive home that wondered, is this going to work, right? 
But God just doesn't just give us a cure, he gives us a king. He starts talking about who this baby will be. There's this battle between light and darkness. And what the angel is saying is that battle is not going to sway back and forth. This is not going to be one of those things where, man, it's going to be a close finish. But we're really hopeful that in the end, good will prevail. Instead, what he says is, the baby in your womb is the son of God, Jesus, and he will reign. He will reign over God's people as their king forever, and he'll do this by keeping a covenant that God the Father made with his people centuries earlier, generations earlier. Nothing will be impossible with God. And so this meeting between this angel and this girl kind of swells into this grandiose conversation about kings and rulers and eternity and vanquishing evil. And yet at the same time, it's an intimate moment between the Lord and his daughter. There's a painting out there in the lobby uh, called the Annunciation. It's of Mary and the angel of the Lord visiting her where Henry Tanner captures the the image of the angel as a, as a presence of light. It's one of my favorite paintings in all of the paintings in this place. And I love the image of it because it is this picture of, of glory and radiance and also humility and fragility and uncertainty. All they're captured in that moment. What I love about it is Mary could be any of us. She could be anyone who has faith. There's nothing particularly special about Mary except that she's chosen to bear the Son of God. We're not given in Scripture a longer list of why she's found favor with the Lord, just that she has. But she hasn't lived long enough to accomplish anything, right? She comes from a place where she doesn't hold any cultural influence or sway. She's not a published author, right? She's a girl who's betrothed to a man and they're going to get married. And and this is the encounter that she has. She could be anyone who believes and she's like us and that she understands so little in comparison to what the angel is telling her. And yet, that won't stop the Lord from doing precisely what he intends to do. See, whether we fully understand what God is going to do in us and through us or not, If God speaks to us, it means he will do what he says. And he has spoken to us. He's given us his word. And his word is filled with promises that he's made to us, about us, about our future, about our present suffering, about our pain, about our past traumas. He has spoken to us. This word from God to Mary left her... with someone who would be with her, God with us, a presence in her life, God's word become flesh. But he also left us with that in this word to Mary. He left us God with us. The message to Mary and to us is essentially that God knows what the world needs in order to be healed. And he is healing it. He intervenes. 
He knows our deepest need. He's meeting it in Christ and the ways that he is meeting it and the way, I should say, that he is meeting it is entirely effective. And in the process of doing that, he changes us. He draws us deeper into humility. He draws us deeper into peace. He draws draws us deeper into a posture of graciousness with others in order to then make us into his advocates of peace in this world. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that at Christmas we stop and we remember this. It reminds us that you have to look at Christmas through the lens of Easter. We have to remember why we celebrate the birth of this baby. It's not just that he was born, which is a miracle, but it's why he was born. Why did he have to come in the flesh? The reason he had to come in the flesh was to offer that body up for us. We celebrate the incarnation because we're celebrating God's solution to our peril, to our lostness, to our sin, to our suffering, to our brokenness, to our rebellion and rejection against God. He redeems that through not just the life, but also the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see that color right there on the, the, this one? It's kind of that greenish blue. That was the color of the tile on the wall of my elementary school in fourth grade by the water fountain. Like, I remember when Clubber announced that he was going to pummel me. I remember the color scheme of that announcement, right? That I had this deep, great need for rescue. And I had no idea how that need would be met. But I'll tell you this, he never laid a hand on me. And that wasn't because of anything that I did. And that wasn't how he would have had it. I thought that rescue was going to look like just taking the beating and then moving on. And as I say that, for some of you, not all of you, but for some of you, I just nailed you to the wall, right? For some of us, this is how we think life works. You take it on the chin and then you just move on. And what the incarnation of Jesus is trying to tell us is it won't be that way forever. And you don't have to live that way now. There is hope. There is healing. There is a redemption. The Lord knows our greatest need. He's meeting it. And the ways he's meeting it is perfectly effective. So we don't just live in terror, waiting on the hit to come and to survive it and to live to take another beating later. We have an advocate. We have a savior who knows our need and meets it in a way that is perfectly effective. Had I known, had I remembered, I could have gone to the principal for help. 
And if I had faith, I could have trusted that his help would be sufficient. But I was a kid. I was a kid and kids don't think that way. We have a Savior who sees our greatest need. And not just that, he sees you. And he knows you. And he intervenes perfectly and effectively and mercifully and lovingly. So even when we don't understand what is happening in us and around us, my prayer is that the Lord would draw from us the response that he drew from Mary. And that is, may it be done to me as you have willed. And may your celebration of Christmas be marked by your worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in fourth grade I didn't get beat up by Clubber Lang. And I thank you, Lord, that that is a picture of how you intervene, that we don't, even when we don't ask for your help, you do what you do. And you are about the business of redeeming and saving and protecting and healing. Father, I don't know what happened to Clubber. I don't know where he is in life right now. I don't know so many details, but I remember that moment. And Lord, we all have those moments, those moments that are, that are kind of tinged in a kind of a sacredness for us, uh, moments when our lives were sort of molded and shaped um, by early encounters with how broken and fragile this world is. For some of those stories, there are things we can talk about with a kind of a, a, a levity like, like this story. But for others of us, there are things we, we, we maybe haven't ever spoken to anybody about. And the pain runs deep and shapes us. And for some of us, Lord, we, 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 we find it almost impossible to believe that healing can be found. And we know that we live in a world that is broken here. And, and, and it'll always be that way until you usher in a new kingdom or until you call us home. And yet, you know our deepest need and you meet it and the way you've met it is perfectly and sufficiently. And so, Lord, help us to trust in that. Help us to rest in that. Uh, Father, I pray that this Christmas, <coughs> as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we would do so by remembering why he came, that we would see Christmas through the lens of Easter, that we would see it, the birth of Jesus, the miraculous gift of this child, and that we would remember why. And that was to live in our place and to die in our place and to, to, to defeat the power of death in our place, giving us life in his name when our faith is in him. Thank you for this gift. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.